0: Alright, welcome to the Wicked Awesome Podcast. This is your host, Matt, speaking. I hope you are doing well. It is October here in Belfast, Maine. I pause there for a second, I'm trying to remember where I am. I'm recording this on Indigenous Peoples Day. I had the day off from work, and we'll be... Completely excited to go back to work tomorrow, believe it or not. I do not podcast for a living, but I haven't given up hope. Someday, someday. I'm going to preface this podcast by just saying that there are many stories in the communities where we grew up that are so tragic that people avoid talking about the subject matter of this podcast is such a situation. And I'm going to be very, very careful about names that I do say, as many people in the Brooks, Maine community are still alive and experienced uh, the reality of this situation. Uh, story that i'm about to tell you and this happened this accident happened 60 years ago july 3rd 1961 now my history with this accident is pretty simple i was not alive in 1961 it was 10 years before i was born now you can do the math on that and figure out how old I am, can't you? I remember when I was 12, I was riding with a family friend going down the hill of Lang Hill Highway. So this would have been the summer of 1983. And he simply stated, uh, there was a bad accident here many years ago, Matt, where a bunch of boys died. And I'm like, oh, really? And he didn't tell me anything more about it. Now, he would have been alive when the accident happened, but I did the math, and he would have been four years old. So he wouldn't have remembered the accident, but he uh, did hear about the story. So then I asked my mother about it shortly after uh, this gentleman telling me about that there was a bad accident. And my mother stated, yes, and your father was almost one of them, meaning uh, my dad was almost in the vehicle. And she also said that Alice's son was one of the five boys that died in the accident. And Alice was a older lady, uh, kind of a grandmotherly type to me that, babysat me for many uh, years and I never of course would never ask Alice about that and that was really all that was said about it then I asked my dad about it the next time I saw him and he didn't talk about it other than just acknowledging that it happened and to this day my dad really won't talk about it though recently he did say a little bit of something about it that uh, was new information to me. Um, it was a little bit of information I already knew, but also he added a little bit to it that is pretty significant in uh, the story. So 20 years ago, in Down East Magazine, a gentleman by the name of Edgar Allan Beam wrote an article in Downey's Magazine about the accident. It's titled, It Can't Happen Here. Now, I looked up Edgar Allen Beam. He's still alive, and he's a freelance writer out of Portland, Maine. And Portland, Maine, for those of you who don't know, is a good hour and a half away from Brooks, if not two hours. And I do not know how Edgar Allen Beam came across uh, this incident and why he decided to write about it, considering I can't find any connection Edgar Allen Beam has to the Brooks or even Waldo County main area. But he does a lovely job in his research, and I'm r- surprised at some of the as to some of the people he did interview. I can't believe they actually agreed to talk to him. And some of these people I will not mention because they're still alive and I don't have their permission. Since the deaths of the individuals are public information, I will be mentioning them. Uh, But I will not mention their family members. And basically, Brooks, Maine is a town of about 800 people. And it's pretty much maintained that population population since i've been born it it fluctuates a little bit but like most of these small towns we don't really gain people we don't really lose people we just kind of stay the same houses come and go businesses close down but really uh you know the towns as far as the landscape of the towns doesn't change that much so If you go to the article, and this article that's 20 years old now, uh, it's really the only thing you can find uh, online. And actually, I'll have to elaborate on that a little bit too. There's nothing online you can really find. You really have to dig deep to find information about this accident. If you go to one of the university libraries, you can go Uh, into new bangor daily news articles uh, local paper articles you can find police reports Uh, those are all available to the public but you really have to do some digging luckily with this down east article the portland public library had it Uh, i had to pay them five bucks for a transfer fee and they just sent it to me as a pdf uh, online uh, so I was lucky I was able to find the Down East article, which I remember reading 20 years ago. 20 years ago, I had a subscription to the magazine, and I didn't save uh, the, the magazine. I know my grandmother did, who uh, died shortly after the article was released, but I don't know what happened to the copy of the magazine that she had. But anyway, I have the article now. Uh, so Brooks... Back in the day, on the 4th of July, always had this big carnival, big festival. And it usually started on the 3rd and went into the 4th. And back in 1961, they even had a street dance. You know, to this day, they still have a 4th of July parade and then fireworks. And I mean, you think in 1961, you think of John F. Kennedy, you think of the Cold War, you think of Annals. Alan Shepard and astronauts going into space, Bay of Pigs, uh, Cuba, you know, Cuba, Mi- Cuban Missile Crisis. You think of the Yankees and Roger Maris, um, you know, pre-Beatles, you know, Elvis maybe was not a rock star anymore. He was in the movies at this point. And it was kind of really just a innocent time. And Fourth of July uh, in Brooks always... Uh, Also featured a chicken barbecue and just a strong, strong community event. And people from all uh, across the county would come because none of the other towns back then had a big 4th of July celebration. Brooks was where it's at. Now we go back to this time. There was a young man by the name of Charlie Fawcett who was back in town a 1955 graduate of the local Morse Memorial High School. He was 22 at the time and he had left town to go to Maine Maritime Academy in Castine, uh, which is still around. In fact, my step-nephew goes there. I just saw him yesterday as he was home. His first uh, voyage as a merchant Seamen had taken him to Europe and Africa and had earned him a substantial bankroll by Waldo County standards. And with this, he bought a 1960 Chevrolet Impala with cream trim, a fine and powerful sedan in which to cruise the back roads of Waldo County in search of friends and fun. Now, Charles Fawcett was had not always been as fortunate as he uh, was at this point. He was tall, handsome, quiet, and a hard worker. He had been born into an unhappy home in Bangor. Bangor, oh my goodness, I am from Maine. Pronounce it right, Matt. Bangor, it's not Bangor. Abandoned by his father and abused by his mother, he, along with his four siblings, had been made wards of the state and sent to live in foster foster homes in Brooks. Now, somebody told me not too long ago, I'm getting away from the article a little bit here, that back in the day, across a lot of these rural towns in Maine, and maybe elsewhere, there are town farms. In fact, most towns now have town farm roads where the town farms existed. Now, on these farms were where a lot of foster kids went to where they were raised and worked on the farm went to school what have you they have since gone by the wayside and it does make me wonder if that type of model should come back i mean i'm sure there's you know stories that are horrific but there are stories that are also positive that went on at these places at these town farms but you know who knows i mean maybe it's uh Maybe it's, we talk about a broken foster system. Maybe it's something that could work again. Anyway, I'll throw that out. Th- I, I just throw that out there now. Maybe that's a topic for another time. All right. As young, as youngsters, Charlie and his sister came to reside with the Reuben-Kenny family out on the Kenny Road. The Kenny Road still exists today, by the way. About 4.30 Monday afternoon, July 3rd, Charlie Fawcett headed downtown where he met up with his foster cousin, Richard Kenny, and his old high school buddy, Donnie, Donnie Ricker. <coughs> Excuse me, Kenny, 29, had spent the day working on the family poultry farm. Back then, uh, the chicken business, chicken farms were huge. There was a huge chicken processing plant in Belfast, and that's become a thing of the past. You won't find a chicken farm anywhere in Maine. Well, I shouldn't say that, in this area now. Ricker, 23, was a crack heavy equipment operator. He ran a bulldozer for a local contractor, Albert Stubbs. Now, Albert Stubbs was a big contractor back then, and Albert Stubbs is also the grandfather of my buddy Eric, who is the co-host of uh, many of the episodes you hear. You hear here. How about that? See how I did that. And anyway, Ricker spent the day sandbagging the dam at the Brooks Reservoir. Apparently, that was a big project. Together, the three young men took a ride into Belfast and Fawcett's new Chevy. Along the way, they stopped at a garage in Waldo to check out the car that had been wrecked in a recent auto accident. The mounting holiday death toll was on everyone's mind. There is no need for automobile accidents, Charlie Fawcett said unequivocally. It was one of the worst wrecks either of us had ever seen, Richard Kenny would observe the next day. Forty years later, however, he would not even remember stopping at the Waldo garage. The three men returned to Brooks about 5.30 p.m. and stopped at a garage operated by Daryl Ricker. Now, the garage operated by Daryl Ricker, I believe, was a hangout of my dad's dad's and I also believe it was a place where my dad worked in high school. My dad also worked for Albert Stubbs. I think my dad just strung a lot of part-time jobs together back then. Forty years later, however, he would not even remember stopping at the Waldo Garage. I read that. Okay. Uh, So anyway, the three men returned to Brooks about 5.30 p.m. and stopped at a garage operated by Daryl Ricker, Donnie Ricker's older brother. Charlie Fawcett sharpened some lawnmower blades for Richard Kenny and then Kenny left. So at this point, you have uh Donnie Ricker, you have Charlie Fawcett, and is that just the two because Richard Kenny left at this point, so you just have those two. Dale Ricker remembers that the young men at the garage were in high spirits, horsing around and wrestling. His brother Donnie was soaking wet, apparently having been pushed into the reservoir after throwing some of his co-workers in himself. Among the young bucks gathered at the garage was Stevie Elwell. All right. And this is where it gets really difficult because um, uh, Stephen Elwell was uh, also working on the dam that day. And the parents ran a local restaurant. And were very well known and well thought of in the town of Brooks. And anyway, after Stevie Elwell got done working on the dam that day, he had gone to help uh, with the uh, Brooks uh, Field Day crew to get festivities ready for the street dance and uh, the July 4th celebration that was to happen the day after. Elwell had attended Hudson College after high school, but just three weeks earlier, on June 11th, he had married and was now driving truck for Albert Stubbs as well. Eugene Moores, and this is Alice's son, who I mentioned, I mentioned Alice earlier. (coughs) Eugene Moores, age 20, joined the group after finishing work at the Penobscot Poultry Lab in Belfast. Morse had graduated from Morse Memorial, where he was co-captain of the Tigers basketball team. His co-captain, Paul Shute, 19, was not a close friend of the other guys at the garage, of the older guys at the garage, I'm sorry. But when the party left, he apparently went along for the ride. So here you have it. You have Paul Shute, Eugene Morse, Stevie Elwell, Donnie Ricker, and uh, the owner of the vehicle, Uh, Charlie Fawcett. Daryl Ricker recalls that his brother Donnie left the garage planning to go home, shower up, change his clothes, and go to the street dance. So when he closed up shop shortly after the younger man left, he was surprised to see Donnie's car still parked over by Delmont Clark's farm equipment business. What he likes to think happened was that Charlie Fawcett offered Donnie a ride to his car and then the carload of young men got fooling around and wouldn't let Donnie out. Now, that's interesting. So Donnie got in the car. The other guys were like, nah, Donnie, nah, stay, stay here. Because it's this is going to kind of add to the story that's not part of the article that I am referencing here. At 6.20 p.m., the Copper Impala carrying Fawcett, Ricker, Elwell, Moores and shoot was seen heading out of the village up the woods road. They probably planned to circle around, come back down Lang Hill and drop Donnie Ricker off. Eight minutes later, four of the young men were dead and one was critically injured. Now I can say this after they left the garage. I believe it was after they left the garage. According to, How people in my family remember this is that after the car left the garage they made a stop at Libby's store. For locals Libby's store is no longer around. It's been torn down but it was the store that's on the corner where the hardware store is now. My dad was there when they stopped at the store and asked if asked to get in the car with them he said no because he had to go get my mother who was staying at my grandparents camp on swan lake and they made fun of him oh come on you know called them the various names that you can think of but also he told me that the store clerk would not sell Mixer to them because they were already too drunk. That is something we'll get into later. Anyway, at some point, they do head up the Woods Road and go down Langhill Highway. And as they're going down Langhill Highway, there's a sharp turn. They tried to, I assume Charlie Fawcett was driving, that he tried to take too fast, and then the accident happened. Lawrence West, 73, and his son Wilbur, 39, were fishing on Marsh Stream near the bridge at the foot of Lang Hill early that evening when they suddenly Showered with broken, when they were suddenly showered with broken glass and car parts. They were right there when it happened. Running up the hill, they found the copper Chevy wrapped around a large elm tree, which that's elm trees around here are a thing of the past. I remember them vaguely. Wilbur West ran to the nearest house to summon help. Word of the accident of the edge of town spread like wildfire around Brooks. Eugene Moores had been thrown from the car and was pinned beneath the wreck still alive. So he was still he was the only one that was still alive after uh, the accident immediately after the accident. However, he would succumb from his injuries the following day in Bangor. Uh, Charlie Fawcett. Donald Ricker, Stephen Elwell, and Paul Shute were all dead at the scene. As rescuers worked for more than two hours to remove their bodies from the mangled Chevy, dozens and scores and hundreds of friends and neighbors and family members stood by in numbed silence. I'll get away from the article again. Uh, My mother remembers the drive back from Swan Lake, she saw a bunch of cars, just many, many cars just around the area. Like, and they stopped what's happened. And then, um, they told my father and mother, uh, what had happened. My father and mother were heading to Lake St. George where my other grandparents were camping. And from what I understand, when dad saw, um, his parents, he just crumbled, crumbled in my grandfather's arms on a silent ride from uh, Brooks to Liberty, Maine. And the evidence of the scene suggested that Charlie Fawcett's 1960 Impala had come down Lang Hill on Route 203, gone off the right side of the road, clipped off eight guard rails and slammed into the elm tree. A smash pocket watch alternately thought to have been Charlie Fawcett's or Donnie Ricker's, found at the scene, established the time of the accident at, at 628. So what's interesting about what happened afterwards was that the 4th of July festivities still went on. The whole town went into shock, as it's mentioned here, and the Brooks Field Day proceeded as scheduled. But my mother, and who I talked to yesterday about it, it's just like everyone was just walking around in a daze. Like, I mean, you can imagine just like a, a carnival affair going on where everyone just walks around just in almost complete silence. Time was suspended as residents endured what one reporter at the time termed the blackest week in the town's history. And another thing that's interesting is this Wednesday, so the accident happened on Monday, uh, July 3rd. On Wednesday, July 5th, hundreds of people filed through Edwin Brazier's funeral parlor to pay their last respects to the dead boy. So just two days after they had visiting hours. On Thursday, three days after, a memorial service for the four victims was held at the Grand Memorial Auditorium. And this was the old Kwanzaa hut that many residents of Brooks will remember. It was a Kwanzaa hut style building, originally built as a training facility for returning GIs after World War II and later pressed into service as a high school gymnasium when i first went to elementary school it was at the morse memorial school and the kwanzaa hut was our cafeteria (coughs) and also our gym for uh, pe classes anyway at the kwanzaa hut there was a solid wall of flowers uh, uh, back in the coffins of Charlie Fawcett, Donnie Ricker, Stevie Alwell, and Eugene Moores. More than 500 people in a town of, you know, 800, close to 800 showed up. So more than half of the town showed up. Now what's interesting here, and I've heard my mother tell the story, my grandmother um, was in attendance, a nurse, and was helping people uh, who were passing out. And apparently there were more than a few people passing out. Now, one of the reasons for this was all you know—the grief and the the shock of the event. Again, only three days after it happened, which is amazing to me. And they have, <coughs> excuse me, the funeral of four boys, four boys, um, all at once, uh, four young men. And this is a time before air conditioning and that Kwanzaa hut. Uh, that Kwanzaa hut. I don't remember it being really well ventilated. It must have been hot as heck. It must have been incredibly hot in there. So I'm sure people were passing out from the heat as well. And then you cram 500 people in there and that gymnasium was small. I can imagine it was really hot. Dr. Arthur Jewell, the town's longtime physician who had delivered three of the boys, feared mass hysteria. Three family members collapsed and had to be carried outside. The Reverend Carl Kingsbury, who three weeks before had married uh, Steve Elwell and his wife, struggled to make sense of the senseless tragedy. This community, this is a quote, This community or area has suffered the greatest loss we hope will ever occur here. And actually, to this day, it is. This is a sad hour. May we continue to live as though they were by our, by our side. Now, Paul Shute's funeral service was held at the Congregational Church two hours after the funeral of the other four. While some in town resented it at the time, Shute's service was held separately because his mother did not want her younger children associating the high school gym with their brother's death. And the thing is, you know... She was right. You know, this is the gymnasium where her kids were still, you know, seeing every single day. And to associate that with the funeral, the funeral place of their older, their dead older brother. uh, Yeah, I can see that. In fact, here it says she was right, says one local resident who attended both funeral services. I never went to a basketball game that night uh, after this. I didn't want to see those four caskets lined up against the wall. Now, the article, this is a little bit of Maine history that uh, was interesting for me to read again because I had forgotten about it when I read it before. As it turned out, the long 1961 Fourth of July weekend set a record across Maine for accidental deaths. Fifteen people died, nine in automobile accidents, and six, in Drownings, the worst record of any New England state. And I haven't, it'd be interesting to check those records again to see if that still, uh, that record still holds up, you know, that notorious record. It's a discouraging record. It bothers me, said Governor Reed at the appalling holiday death toll. But the governor admitted he didn't know what the answer was to stemming the carnage on made Roads. He suggested more driver education programs, more publicity about highway safety, and tougher laws to make it easier to spend the licenses of habitual motor vehicle offenders. But what isn't mentioned here is that uh, they're not talking about uh, drunk driving, which was likely a factor in some of these deaths. And it's one thing that isn't talked about in town but it's implied, though some people have come out and said it. Alcohol was definitely involved in this accident. The trouble is that too many people are bothered by the wrong thing, declared a Portland Press Herald editorialist on July 6th. They're shocked by these nine fatalities, but not by the five accidents. In sympathy for those who suffer the effects of the crashes, the causes are overlooked. Kind of getting to my point. The article goes on. To this day, most com- the most common explanation around Brooks for what happened on July third, nineteen 1961, is that the sun may have blinded the driver as he headed down Lang Hill Highway into the sharp left-hand curve just below The narrow marsh stream bridge. That left hand turn is still around today. However, from what I understand, it's not as sharp as it once was. But okay, now this is where I call BS. I have never heard of anyone saying that the sun got into the driver's eyes. Bull. Okay, these guys knew the roads of Brooks, Maine as well as anyone. And, no, I don't believe that for a second. I mean, I just don't. I just don't. Yes, I mean, this. the sun would have been in that position, but I just, I mean, those of us from Waldo County, those of us that <clears throat> know the rural roads of Brooks, Maine, I mean, we don't get into accidents because of the sun being in our eyes. I'm sorry, we just don't. We just don't. Now, some people may disagree and come back. And if you do, go ahead. You can disagree with me. And I can be persuaded the other way. But I just don't think that's the common explanation of this accident because I've never heard of that being the cause of this accident other than this article. Now, Richard Kenney is quoted as saying, everybody thinks they know what happened, but they didn't. And you know what? That's fair. That's fair. And Richard Kenny could have easily been in this car as well. Now, the talk around town immediately after the accident was that uh, some of the victims had been drinking. And as I mentioned before, that's what I always heard, too. A carload of buddies out cruising out on the 4th of July weekend. Big dance that evening. Charlie just home from the sea. And uh, all of them thirsty for beer. After the end of a hard-working day, sure, it made sense. Um, and some folks even reported seeing unopened beer in the trunk of the demolished Impala. But even if there was an unopened beer uh, in the car, I mean, that doesn't really explain much. I mean, they could have drank that later, but anyway. But, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is back then, uh, people uh, drinking and driving wasn't as big of a deal as it is now. I mean, and we can all, I mean, most people in my generation can tell stories about uh, people back in the 70s, early 80s being pulled over, intoxicated, and the cops would be like, "Uh, maybe your wife uh, should be driving you home. I mean, it just, someone getting an OUI, though it did happen, uh, sometimes cops would look the other way. It wasn't, it wasn't as big of a deal. But, I mean, but if you look at the official accident report, which the writer of the article did get his hands on, um, boxes like, uh, under the condition of the driver, uh, that was marked. And this was by Stanley Knox, who was a state trooper at the time, and he was later the Waldo County Sheriff. Under the influence, that was marked. and, uh, And then Knox also checked, exceeded the safe speed and under the influence one more time. And the thing is, it doesn't make this accident any less tragic, and it's not putting the blame on the victims of the crash, because in reality, it happened to these five young men, but it could have been another... It could have been a completely different group of five men in this town that were in this same situation, really. I mean... And I know I've been guilty of doing crazy things in my youth, and I am not one to judge anyone's behavior. This accident was incredibly tragic. All good kids from good families. And this whole thing about boys being boys, uh, boys were boys this in this, uh, in this uh, situation and uh, the situation was extremely unfortunate and um, at the time at the time this Brooks crash was the third worst the third most fatal accident in Maine history it has since changed and In large part, uh, this accident outside of the town of Brooks uh, is forgotten. And as people that remember the accident uh, live through that time are no longer around, perhaps it's one of the stories that will be completely forgotten about. And... I got together with some guys the other night and we talked about an accident that happened in our lifetime that uh, was equally as tragic, not as many people died. However, the effect on the community is still felt today. And every time it's talked about, it's talked about briefly. In all of these situations, all of these tragedies, it's not talked about at length. It's talked about briefly and it's just always one of those things you shake your head at and it's just like, damn. It's just too bad that that had to happen. I do apologize to any of the people that live in the Brooks community that have uh really horrible memories of this. And I hate to rehash, you know, old memories maybe best left forgotten and it's not i'm not doing this to stir up trouble my podcast is about stories in the community and it's about stories that i heard a lot i mean stories about me but also stories that i have heard that have affected me in some way and this is a story that has affected me because i was always told that my father was almost in this vehicle and it's one of it's a story he still can't talk about, and I I did bring it up to him a few weeks ago. He did tell me a little bit, and that's the most he's ever uh, told me. So, I mean, so it's part of me. I mean, it's not a very, 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 very small part of me as I had grandparents, parents, uh, uh, uncles, aunts, uh, people in the community who I know now that all lived through it and i care about all of these people and i care about the town of brooks Maine. and if anyone in the community wants to give me feedback uh, regarding their memories uh, feel free and if i got anything wrong please let me know and i will uh, go on another podcast and retract what i said I'm going by the information that I have in front of me, and I'm going by information that was told to me by people uh, that lived through it 60 some odd years ago. And with stories like that, with so much time that has gone by, you know, inaccuracies do happen. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for listening. I do love you all, and until next time, be well.